Orville once said, aviation has not only come further than Wilbur and I imagined it would, it has come further than we ever could have imagined. And he said that in the 1920s when airmail was just becoming a thing. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. On today's show, I brought on Nick Angler, who is the director at Wright Brothers Aeroplane Company. He's also a well-known woodworking author. He also is a YouTube star, and his YouTube channel is called The Workshop Companion, if you want to go check that out. He joined me, and we discussed the Wright Brothers, their entire journey from concept to success, and then we discussed future innovations that are desperately needed. Let's give it a listen. I wanted to introduce here Nick Engler, who is a very knowledgeable person in more than just airplanes, I want to add. Uh, He's written many books on woodworking, and he also is a YouTube star. I wanted to throw that in there. And Nick, before we get into our conversation, I wanted you to real quick tell me what we were talking about earlier, how when you were teaching at the University of Cincinnati, who you were teaching with. Uh, (laughs) Well, I was teaching in the School of Engineering at the same time that Neil Armstrong was there, the first man on the moon. And what was that like just seeing him in the halls and everything? Oh, I, it was it, it was it was like uh, meeting your hero. You know, it was it. it uh, you you just you know every. I, I didn't ever do, do anything more than just catch a glimpse of it. But but man, oh man, it was exciting just to know that he was in the same film. Continuing on with your introduction, Nick, you are currently the director at the Wright Brothers Aeroplane Company, and why don't you tell us a little bit about that company, and then we'll get into our conversation. The Wright Brothers Airplane Company makes airplanes for uh, mostly for museums. We've done a few that, that hang in uh, institutions, but uh, uh, we have built all the um, experimental airplanes of the Wright Brothers. Eighteen, we we've built eighteen airplanes in all and flown nine of them. So, at, uh, and we also maintain a large website on uh, called the Wright Brothers Airplane Company on the web uh, that uh, whose one and only purpose is to um, give kids enough information so that they can uh, uh, copy it uh, for school papers. Awesome. Why don't we, Nick, have you summarize the Wright brothers and their accomplishment and what they did kind of give us a background. That's a good idea because, uh, because the, yeah, we all think we know the story, but there are so many myths and myth conceptions that have been woven into it that it's really you really need to establish a common jumping off point you know the Wright brothers story is the story we tell our children after the after they outgrow the little engine that could and because of that it's become a part of our cultural bedrock it speaks more about how we see ourselves than it does who the Wright brothers really were so i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a shortened version of their story with uh, all the mythology that is accumulated with it. 
This is, uh, you'll, you'll recognize the parts, but this is really a little bit different than what you've heard before. Let me, first of all, talk about uh, the aeronautical environment when the Wright brothers began working on, uh, on airplanes. It was in the 1890s uh, when the Wright brothers took up the flying problem, which was what it was called back then. The scientists were hotly debating whether man flight was even possible. An Englishman, his name was Sir George Cayley, had put aeronautics on a scientific footing in the early 1800s, correctly defining the forces of lift, drag, and thrust. And the science had advanced pretty well throughout the 19th century. And in the early 1890s, a guy by the name of Otto Lilienthal, a German, became the first successful glider pilot. But his aircraft were very primitive and quite dangerous. So he, his only control was to swing his body back and forth as they hung underneath, sort of tipping the airplane this way and that. In 1896, the same year that Lilienthal died in a crash, the secretary of the U.S. Smithsonian Institution, Dr. Samuel P. Langley, flew some large unmanned aircraft, uh, sort of drones, and uh, he became a household name for doing so. He was, it, he was sort of the Elon Musk of the day. But, but his model aircrafts had no controls whatsoever. They just flew. Now, that's where things stood in 1898 when the right story really begins. On April 25th of that year, the United States declared war on Spain, and it began the Spanish-American War. Assistant Secretary Theodore Roosevelt pushed the Department of War to develop Langley's experimental unmanned airplanes into a practical manned weapon. The Army agreed, and they uh, funded Dr. Langley's research to the tune of $50,000, which doesn't sound like much, of, uh, much to us today, but back then, it was unheard of song. And it was really unheard of because the army, uh, the army, the, the military uh, establishment back then was extremely thrifty. They concentrated more on saving bullets than uh, buying weapons. So they agreed to give Langley $50,000 and the project was top secret. So naturally, it was in all the newspapers the next day. Wilbur and Orville at that time were two small time bicycle manufacturers in Dayton, Ohio when they read the news. They had a wide ranging interest in science and innovation and a fascination with the possibility of manned flight, which had been there since childhood. If Langley was successful, and with $50,000 and all the resources of the Smithsonian, there was no reason to presume that it wouldn't be, aviation would become an industry. But in order to be useful, the Wright brothers reasoned that an airplane would need some controls. It had to be navigated. And Langley's aircraft, those drones that he was flying, they had none. As cyclists, Wilbur and Orville knew a thing or two about the control, and they thought if they could design a practical control system for an airplane, they could make some money. For the rest of 1898 and most of 1899, they gathered information on aeronautics. Uh, when they exhausted everything that was available to them in Dayton, they wrote to the Smithsonian for more. Um, they also wrote a guy by the name of Octave Chanute. He was a respected engineer. He had built the first bridge across the Missouri River and then had uh, spent his later years uh, building, designing, and test flying his own gliders. He served as kind of a nexus or a touchstone for people who were interested in flying. If you, if you wanted to know who was flying what where, you talked to Chanute. 
Well, Octave Chanute took an instant interest to w- in Wilbur, and uh, Wilbur told the older man that he planned on flying gliders to test their ideas, just as Chanute had done a few years earlier. So much of the research wasn't just gathering information. It was also watching birds, especially turkey vultures, which we, we have a lot of around here in Ohio. The Wrights tried to figure out how they controlled themselves in flight, and from their observations, the Wrights reasoned that the birds used aerodynamic controls, that is the pressure of the wind against their wings and tail. They changed the angle of their tail to pitch up and down, and they twisted their wings to roll right and left. They turned much the same way that cyclists do, that is they leaned or rolled in the direction they wanted to, to go. Uh, Now, this was a departure from what other experimenters had done. Most had an elevator to pitch up and down and a rudder to go right and left. But the Wright brothers being cyclists, they thought, hey, let's roll into a turn. Well, Wilbur built a large biplane kite modeled after one of the more successful gliders that had been uh, flown by Chanute. And he installed a rudimentary control system for roll and pitch. The kite worked, so the Wrights began to plan full-size glider. Now, they knew they would need a windy place to test their gliders. They didn't have some wind, but not enough to to, uh, really glide every day, any day. And preferably, they wanted a place with a lot of sand. Sand has a physical property called hysteresis, which simply means that if if you hit it, it does not hit you back. It absorbs the impact. Lilienthal and many other of aeronautical experimenters had died in crashes, So sand, they figured, would give the Wright brothers a fighting chance. So after writing the U.S. Weather Bureau for a list of the windiest places in the United States, they settled on Kitty Hawk, a tiny little village on the North Carolina Outerbanks, right on the Atlantic Ocean. Well, in late September of 1900, Orville and Wilbur built a biplane glider about the same size and similar to Octave Chanute's, the glider that he had built that performed the best. But unlike Chanute's glider, which was guided by weight shifting like Lilienthal's gliders, the Wrights added an aerodynamic control system so for roll and pitch. There was an ele- uh, elevator to go up and down and bendable wings so that they could roll into turns. They t- tested this at Kitty Hawk and were immediately disappointed. The control system seemed to want to work, but the glider didn't fly well. Specifically, it didn't generate enough lift. It couldn't fly a man more than a few seconds. They made about a dozen flights with it and went home to Dayton to think about it. They deduced that if the glider wasn't producing enough lift, it must not be big enough. That must not have enough wing area. So Will and Orr built a second glider with massive wings. Their, their 1901 glider was, in fact, the largest glider that anyone had ever tried to fly. And when Wilbur told Schnute about the new glider, Schnute suggested that they mount an aviation expedition in which they would test more than one aircraft. He invited, Chanute invited, an accomplished aeronautical scientist, Edward Huffaker, to test a glider of Chanute's design at the Wright camp in Kitty Hawk. He also invited uh, Dr. George Spratt, an aviation enthusiast, to to come along and provide some extra manpower. But once again, their 1901 glider fell short of the Wright's hopes and expectations. It would, in some ways, it was more disappointing than the first one. It j- did not generate enough lift, but it also didn't respond to the controls at all. Furthermore, the Wrights did not get on well with Huffaker. 
whom they found it was arrogant and thoughtless. But their conversations with Spratt got them thinking of some experiments that they might do to create better wings for future gliders. So when the Wrights went back to Dayton, they built a wind tunnel. It happened to be the second in America. The first was built by a guy by the name of Albert Zahm, Catholic University. Zahm would become a good friend to the Wright brothers and then their most dire enemy. But that's another story. They compared over 200 wing shapes in their wind tunnel, measuring both lift and drag. They identified those shapes that generated the most lift and the least drag. And then using this wind tunnel data, they designed their third glider. The Wright brothers got back to Kitty Hawk in late summer of 1902. Once again, Chanute visited them with other uh, enthusiasts, and the 1902 glider flew beautifully, wonderfully, providing enough lift to keep a man aloft in a brisk wind. For the first time, the Wrights had a test bed with which to test their control system. And when they tested these controls, they found an unexpected problem. When they twisted the wings and they rolled the glider into a turn, it would start to turn, and then suddenly it would turn in the other direction. Sometimes it would stall and fall out of the sky. They thought through this problem, considering all the forces on the glider, and they finally arrived at a simple solution. Remember now, they only had two controls, roll and pitch. They decided they needed at least one more control surface, one that they initially thought they could do without. They had to add a rudder to keep the glider headed in the direction they wanted to go. So they added the rudder, and the glider turns suddenly without any, doing anything weird. The 1902 glider was the first aircraft with three axis control, roll, pitch, and yaw. It had, the, it had an elevator to pitch the nose up and down, twistable wings to roll it clockwise and counterclockwise, and a rudder to yaw the nose right and left. That became a standard. Well, Chanute had brought some interesting news with him. The U.S. Army was growing really tired of Langley. He was supposed to fly his manned airplanes in 1901, a year previously, but he still hadn't gotten off the ground. He hadn't even tried anything. So the Army told Langley that if he didn't attempt to fly by 1903, they would pull his funding. Well, Wimbledon and Orville, they're suddenly sitting there at Kitty Hawk with a glider that flies. And they figure that with their improved control system and an engine, they just might beat Langley into the, into the air. They could be the first to fly. A little luck and a lot of work. So they returned to Dayton, having achieved two of the three requirements for successful powered flight. They had sufficient lift and they had adequate control. But what remained was thrust. So they worked through the winter and built a small, lightweight engine and efficient propellers. Then they built a much larger aircraft than they had before, one with a 40-foot wingspan, enough to, uh, to carry the engine, the propellers, a drive train, and one of the brothers. Well, they shipped this back to Kitty Hawk in late September of 1903. It had taken much longer to build this thing than they hoped it would. And uh, they barely had time to build a new hangar in which to set up their airplane when Langley makes his first attempt at flight. Langley's airplane is absolutely mammoth, 52 feet long and 48 feet from wingtip to wingtip. It's a scaled-up version of his 1896 model airplanes. It only has a rudimentary two-axis control, a cruciform tail that uh, acts as both a rudder 
and an elevator. Neither of the controls, nor the airplane for that matter, had ever been tested. And on October 7th, 1903, Langley's crew catapults the airplane from a houseboat on the Potomac River near Washington, D.C., and it dives into the water, showing absolutely no desire to fly. The crew fishes it out, and they begin to rebuild it for another try. Now, meanwhile, the Wrights are having their own problems. They finally get their powered airplane, which they optimistically call the Flyer, ready to fly in November. But the propeller shafts keep breaking. Orville has to travel back to Dayton to make new shafts out of tool steel, a much stronger material than what they were using. When they finally get the Flyer running properly in late November, they don't have uh, good enough weather to fly. They have to sit and wait for the weather. And during this time, Langley makes one more flight attempt. And this time, his aircraft actually breaks apart in the air. Well, finally, on December 17, 1903, the weather cooperates. The Wright brothers make four flights, each one a little longer than the last, and all in perfect control. The longest lasts 59 seconds and covers 852 feet. Much to their own surprise, Wilbur and Orville beat Langley to become the first men to make a sustained, controlled, powered flight. The United States Patent Office grants them a patent on their three-axis aerodynamic controls in 1906, and this becomes the pioneer patent of the aviation industry. To this day, every fixed air wing aircraft still flying uses it, and that's the story. I love it. I love that story. And with Langley, his plane falling apart in the air, I bet his heart just broke. It's unfortunate, but you're right. He died in 1906, a a broken man. He never, he never lived it down. He was mercilessly skewered in the, in the newspapers, you know, because he was flying into the river and the airplane had sunk. A lot of people in Congress said that they should have paid him to build submarines. He was a good scientist. He really was. I mean, this is the guy who discovered sunspots. He also invented time zones. You and I can speak at exactly seven o'clock because of Langley. We have four time zones in this country because of Langley. History is such fascinating things, but we often forget the people who made it. Langley made his own contribution to our world today. I was going to say, looking back, if it wasn't for him, the Wright brothers because I kept thinking as you were talking, what was their motivation? And part of it was competition. It was competition from 1902 on. Before 1902, it was money. They were uh, having some problems, and they realized that if Langley was successful, that aviation would be a big deal if they had a patent on. You see, the Wright brothers knew a thing or two about patents. Their brother, Lauren, had one. He had, he had designed a seed planter for their uncle, uh, Samuel Langley, uh, not Samuel Langley, Samuel Wright, uh, who owned an agricultural business, and Samuel Langley owned patents on tools that he sold. So they they knew what a patent could do. Plus, they were living in America, and uh, inventors were the heroes of the day. Everybody was uh, fed with the stories of Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison and all the fame and money they had supposedly achieved. And uh, the Americans just laughed it up. They they were convinced that the the best way to achieve payment of money was to invent a better mousetrap. So the Wright brothers said, hey, we know a thing up through about control. We can invent a control system for the coming airplane industry that Langley is going to start. Did they experience any setbacks 
as far <laughs> as wanting to give up and some intervention came and was like, hey, keep going. Did they ever experience anything like that? Yeah, it would take less time to tell you what setbacks they didn't have than ones they did have. You know, they, they <clears throat> began their aviation adventure thinking that all the problems had been solved, but one. Uh, there seemed to be adequate research and experimentation on wing designs, propellers, and engines to produce an aircraft that would develop sufficient lift and thrust. They thought that all that they needed was an adequate control system. However, those, those suppositions were incorrect. The Wright brothers had to do their own research in every area, every little thing. Lift, thrust, control, just to get off the ground. Plus, they had to teach themselves to fly. Now, this was no small deal. There was no one to teach them to fly uh, and impart those complex skills. You need to control an airplane in the air for the simple reason that there were no airplanes. But problems have solutions. And the Wright brothers were very good at taking complex uh, problems apart and reducing them to a collection of small, more easily solved problems. Let's take the... the uh, problem of flight training that we were just discussing. How can you teach yourself to fly safely when you know that a single fall might kill you? Well, the Wright brothers observed that gliders follow a slope as they descend. It's called a glide slope. Sand dunes also have slopes. So if you take a sand dune and you match the slope of the sand dune with the glide slope of your glider, you can teach yourself to fly two feet off the ground. You can fall every, uh, on every single flight and the fall won't kill you, okay? You can crash all you like and, and uh, get up, brush off the sand, and do it over again. So problem solved, potential setback, death avoided. As you were explaining everything, what really impresses me is the level of detail. For example, like you were saying, where are we going to crash, which is a huge thing that you're going to think of. And it's like, well, the sand, and you were explaining with the sand, there is no opposing force when you land and it's a safer area. So it makes sense that they would do it in Kitty Hawk rather than Ohio. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I've run into the Ohio ground from time to time on my motorcycle. It, it's, it's not fun. And it's interesting too, with their level of detail and then building a wind tunnel and everything like that. How big was that? By our standards today, it was fairly small. I've been in a wind tunnel, NASA's wind tunnel, where, I mean, you could fit a three-story building. But uh, their wind tunnel was just 24 inches by 24 inches by six feet. I'm sorry. It was a foot and a half and a foot and a half by six feet. It wasn't 24 inches. And it developed about 20-mile-per-hour wind. No big wind, but they were gliding at 20 miles per hour. So it was everything they, they needed for that particular set of experiments. What was the wind source? How are they getting that wind in there? They built a propeller. This was actually one of their first propeller. It was a four-bladed fan made out of metal, and they mounted it on an old grinder. Now, the, the Wright brothers had were in their bicycle shop in the back room where their workshop was. They had a single, um, it was a natural gas engine, a one-lung natural gas engine that they used to run all their machines. And it had belts that ran pulleys overhead. And then the, you would drop down leather belts from the, these pulleys and uh, hook them to an arbor, uh, this grinder. So they removed the grindstone from the grinder, put the propeller on, and that was the propeller for the wind tunnel. That's the definition of bootstrapping. 
<laughs> you know, everything was bootstrapped. Everything. It's it, it, it's just absolutely fantastic what they were able to achieve with as with as little as they had. Like you say, with how they went about things and their perseverance, and then their attention to detail. What kind of guys were they? The brothers. What were they like? What were their personalities like? What did people think of them? Well, you know, I've never met them, so I can't speak, but I have sure read a lot about them, you know. From what I understand, from reading a lot of the people who met them and, and what they wrote about them, that when you first met them, uh, you, you thought that they were kind of standoffish with underdeveloped social skills, you know. They were nerdy, sometimes goofy. Wilbur almost never smiled or laughed. He, he had a reputation of being dour. They both liked to hide themselves in their work, and they preferred their own company, obviously. But almost everyone who struggled through those first impressions and spent enough time with them to get them to open up came away impressed with their authenticity, their intelligence, their insight, and especially their focus. And they learned there were simple reasons for the why they were the way they were. As kids, their father, Milton, was a circuit preacher for the Church of the United Brethren. He, he traveled widely, and his promotions often meant that the family had to move. So Wilbur and Orville and his brothers and their sister were always saying goodbye to their friends. Their own relationship was one of the few constants in their lives. As for the no laughing quirk, um, when he was a teenager, Wilbur had been injured during a game of shinny, which is kind of like hockey, but without skates. You just sort of use your feet on the ice. Well, his front teeth were knocked out. And the family couldn't afford really good false teeth. They could afford some, but they weren't the best quality. So he never smiled or laughed with his mouth open because he was ashamed of his teeth. But those who got to know him soon found out that he enjoyed a joke the same as everyone and that he could tell a better joke than almost anyone. They were also extremely curious, and their parents encouraged this curiosity, which is a big part of their success. They had really, really supportive parents. There were two libraries in the right home. Milton's library was, uh, had, was filled with philosophy and religion, and they had a family library with literature, history, and science. And the rights were uh, encouraged to borrow books from both libraries. Um, Wilbur's teachers actually once voiced a concern to Milton that Wilbur had read some Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll back then was known as the uh, great agnostic, which was almost as bad as being an atheist back in the 1800s. And so naturally, everybody was concerned for Wilbur's spiritual well-being. Well, Milton replied to the teachers by asking, how could Wilbur be expected to make decisions in life if he didn't have all sides of the story? You know, I, I talked earlier about focus. They had a focus in gallons. Uh, the residents of Kitty Hawk would remark how if they visited the Wright camp before dinner, the Wrights continued to work, barely even acknowledging their visitors. And they would give extremely short answers, uh, making it well known that they wanted them to go away. But once they had quit for the day, they were as polite and loquacious as any of their neighbors. I think the big thing that you find in the, in the most of the remarks especially after they begin to fly. And this comes mostly from Europeans. They were amazed by how authentic the Wright brothers were. Uh, they could have easily spun a fantastic narrative about the dangers they had faced and the historic feats they had accomplished. People remarked about how little they bragged and exaggerated and how unpretentious they were. While in France, um, 
the aristocracy there, uh, whom Wilbur hoped to sell airplanes to, was absolutely astounded that he worked right alongside the workman who had been assigned to assemble his airplane. He also wore a green ivy cap, uh, known, uh, sometimes known as a newsboy's cap. Well, in France, this was a commoner's cap. And uh, they ridiculed it first, but after a while, they loved it. They loved the fact that he had accomplished so much and was completely without affect. What was it in French? Uh, casque, I, I'm going to murder this. Casquette verte, green cat. Uh, in French, that became a fad. Speaking of this and talking about France and everything, what was the world's reaction to the news of this and this development and this patent? What was it like? All right. I'll tell you a story that I, I tell the kids. They often, they often ask me, you know, how did the world react? And, well, it's hard to say. You know. First of all, Orville once said, aviation has not only come further than Wilbur and I imagined it would, it has come further than we ever could have imagined. And he said that in the 1920s when airmail air was just becoming a thing. Well, 20 years later, he took his last airplane ride in a Lockheed Constellation. This was the first passenger airplane ever capable of flying passengers above the weather. The wing of that airplane was longer than the Wright brothers' first flight. So you could see, amazed everyone who uh, looks back on the history, it amazed the Wright brothers themselves. Well, aviation really has become such an imp- integral part of our lives. I mean, it affects everything. It's difficult for us to imagine a world without it. It's absolutely impossible to know how it affected people in the earliest 20th century when they first began hearing that two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, wherever that was, had flown a powered airplane that looked like an overgrown kite. The only thing I can do with, I do this with kids, is, um, well, at least older kids, because you have to know a little bit of physics to grasp this. I do what Albert Einstein would have called a thought experiment. Now, I would imagine that you have heard of the Alcubierre Drive. In 1994, theoretical physicist Miguel Alcubierre produced a mathematical model of a method of propulsion that would allow a spaceship to travel faster than light. Miguel Alcubierre was kind of the uh, George Cayley of his day, the guy who put aeronautics on the right track. This drive that he came up with would shrink space-time in front of the craft and expand it in back, uh, using enormous amounts of energy to do that, but that would actually propel it along. It was the first design to, uh, first attempt to design a warp drive, a propulsion system that had appeared in science fiction in the 1930s, and we all know was made popular by Star Trek. Most of us thought it was just fiction, but here was all QBR saying, here's how to do it. You just more need more energy than there is in the sun and a way to control it. Well, the thing is, this wasn't a one-off. Since 1994, there have been several intriguing scientific papers proposing versions of the Alcubierre drive that require less energy and seem more doable. So doable that both NASA and SpaceX and some other institutions have, are looking into it seriously. Okay, uh, set the stage. Now let's do the thought experiment. Imagine if SpaceX produced a massive but unmanned craft that, when turned on, disappeared from one end of a football field and reappeared instantaneously on the other end. 
the first demonstration of a working Alcubier drive. Elon Musk lets it be known that with enough funding, his team can produce a demand vehicle that will leave SpaceX's parking lot and will reappear seconds later, orbiting Saturn. Investors line up. After all, any, if anyone can do it, it's Elon Musk. He's the Samuel P. Langley of our day. Well, years go by. The investors get antsy. SpaceX stages a demonstration of something now and then, but they never travel all that far, and they occasionally blow up. But gradually, these demonstrations become more reliable, and eventually they reach a point where SpaceX can comfortably risk the lives of actual passengers. They have a, a grand event showing a machine painted with a big Saturn or bus sign. Several astronauts climb in, someone throws a switch, and then nothing. The machine doesn't even disappear. After a few hours, the astronauts climb back out. Elon Musk is mercilessly ridiculed in all corners of the social media, even Twitter. A few weeks later, NASA detects a signal coming from the vicinity of Saturn. Two brothers who own a startup in Silicon Valley, a company that writes artificial intelligence software, have been secretly experimenting with a new energy-efficient version of the Alcubierre drive that was designed by one of their AI programs that they had narrowly focused on, what else? Warp drives. They built the drive and attached it to an old Volkswagen because uh, that would be easier to pressurize for a short amount of time. The brothers then traveled to Saturn, stayed just long enough for NASA to get a fix on them, proving that they had made the trip, and then returned to their business in San Jose. Round trip, 35 minutes. Saturn is 8.5 astronomical units away from Earth at its closest approach, and light would take 72 minutes to travel between them. So, roughly two times faster than light. Now, think about how you and your neighbors react, would react to this news. Most wouldn't believe it. It's just too outlandish. If Elon Musk and SpaceX, with all their resources, can't do it, how could two owners of a small business with no funding other than their own earnings get it done? And if this did happen, what does it mean? How will it affect the way we live now? How could we, earthbound from birth, even begin to imagine how a practical Alcubierre drive and on-demand interstellar travel will change the world. No, no, change the universe in which we live. A few of us would guess correctly that our lives were just about ready to be turned upside down. And the rest of us would just keep on living. I don't have any more questions. That was the perfect way to put it. Because traveling from one place to another, being able to not have to travel by sea or by land and going over mountains and stuff like that, you could just do a straight shot to where you need to go most of the time. And it did change the world. Like you say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, sometimes, sometimes when I tell this, the, this, uh, uh, story to kids, they ask me, well, what did the airplane do for the world? I said, it enabled you to send carnations from, uh, from Guatemala to your grandmother in Dayton, Ohio. They say, what? And I said, I said, it enabled you to sell carnations from Guatemala to your grandmother in Dayton, Ohio, it has affected so many things, everything. You, you cannot think of an industry that does not rely on aviation. We take people to hospitals and helicopters. Uh, we travel via airplanes. We wage war. We wage peace. Everything is done with aviation. And it has affected the flower industry. Okay. 
We're able to grow carnations year round in warm areas like Guatemala, put them on airplanes and ship them to Dayton, Ohio. So you can send your grandmother carnations on her birthday. Just nothing you can't you can think of that it hasn't been affected. For all the men who are listening, what would be one of the many overall lessons given by this development by the Wright brothers that you would want them to know that they could take with them? Something that impressed you the most with the story that will help benefit them? Actually, I can't say just one thing because there are two important things that I continually tell people, uh, uh, especially young people, when I talk to them about the Wright brothers. Two things. First, don't be overly convinced that you're right all the time, or even most of the time. We're all proud of our brains, and we boast that we have evolved to become the most intelligent animals on the face of the earth. But we forget that evolution is an ongoing process, and we are all still about 100,000 years away from being relieved of cognitive distance in the Kruger-Dunning effect. We can be so convinced that we have the truth when what we really have is an opinion. Hundreds of people before the Wright brothers tried to fly and each had a pet theory in which they believed passionately. That steadfast belief in the face of conflicting facts doomed them to failure. And in some cases, it doomed them to death. Well, the Wright brothers had no pet theories. They waltzed into the flying problem, believing that there was nothing left to do but come up with an effective control system and just two axes, pitch and roll. They were quickly abused of these theories, and uh, they let them go quickly for something better informed. Their willingness to let experience and inquiry drive their beliefs is an important and thoroughly unappreciated element of their success. The second is more straightforward, and simply this. Do something, solve a problem, or create something beautiful, or do both. There's no reason you can't mix science and art. After all, that's what craftsmanship is all about. Pick a goal, focus on it, and get busy doing something that will make your life and the people around you better. And never think that what you might be doing is inconsequential. Focused, dedicated work is the exception, not the rule, for each and every one of us there is an Alcubierre drive out there just waiting to be tinkered with. You just got to go do it. And that's what I love about the Wright Brothers story is you have these bike shop owners that change the world, like you said, and really hyper-connected everybody. Before it was just ships the, between continents and everything and, and long rides and trains. And then you have this airplane now that just hyper-connected. And I love the story. It, it was America where this got this done. And, and um, in the early 1800s, we found ourselves in possession of a country that was too big. And uh, to settle it, there was just too much to do. So we began to invent better ways to travel and better ways to do work. And inventors became American heroes because of it. And Wright brothers were a product of that culture. They were only one uh, generation removed from pioneers who just never thought, there was anything else to do, but just put your head down and plow. You get the work done, no matter how long it takes, no matter what it takes, you get the work done. It never even occurred to them that they didn't have something to uh, contribute to aviation. It never occurred to them that they wouldn't eventually uh, fly, except maybe maybe one time they were, uh, they got that second glider really punched a hole in their opinion of themselves. 
but not just because the glider failed. Uh, that guy I mentioned, Edward Hopper, who was with him, he was full of himself, and uh, he kept making these hints about how the Wright brothers didn't have the uh, mathematical or the engineering background to be doing what they were trying to do. So when they got home from Kitty Hawk on that second trip, their sister described it best. She she was writing to their father, Milton, and she said, the boys came home unexpectedly uh, last week. They don't talk at all about flying. All they can say is how unpleasant Edward Hoffaker was. And, and, and they were really thinking at that time of just giving it up. But um, at the same time, Catherine was writing that letter. Another letter came in from Octave Chanute asking Wilbur to uh, come speak to the uh, Western Society of Engineers. Now, the Western Society of Engineers, the WSE, was at that time the most prestigious institution for professional engineers on the face of the earth. And for Wilbur to get to speak, that was a really a big deal. He wasn't going to go. He said, I, I can't speak to these guys. But Catherine hounded him until he finally relented. And then he said, well, if I'm going to go and Hufferker's going to be there, I better have whatever I say backed up by some science. So that's when uh, Orville and Wilbur made their first wind tunnel. Actually, uh, they just made a little wind tunnel out of cardboard. Ran a few experiments. It seemed to say uh, what what Wilbur was thinking that uh, the, uh, the the accepted procedure for designing wings on an airplane was flawed. So he went uh, to this meeting in Chicago, said that, and when they came back, they thought, "Well, we put our foot on her now. Now that we said it, we really got to prove it." So they built a bigger wind tunnel, and they started out not having not having the mathematics or the technical background to be doing what they were doing, and in six months. They were world authority. That's what kept coming to my mind, because I think what holds a lot of people back is, well, I'm not an expert. And then you go to college and you have these professors that are saying traveling faster than the speed of light is impossible. But, you know, <laughs> like what you were talking with the warp engine and stuff like that, too. Well, there's these thing called wormholes, right, that you can travel through and there's ways around it. I think that's what holds a lot of people back. And like you said, what's more important than theorizing about things is doing things. And then yeah. after they figure that out, the science comes and, and backs it up. The first step, the first step in any project is deciding to do it. That's why I tell kids, do something, do something. That's it. And, you know, and humanity as a whole has already decided that we're going to go to the stars. We, it's, it's a done deal. It, it really is. In, in the 1800s, when uh, they were arguing about whether or not man could fly, Jules Verne appeared. And for the first time, he began mentioning airplanes in his literature. You know, he'd write novels and there would be people flying around. And this caught the, um, the this caught the attention of, of people like Wilbur and Orville. And uh, they just, you know, they lived with the stories the way we live with Star Trek. And they just presumed, yeah, it can be done. It can be done. And so that's where we are now. We've had Gene Roddenberry tell us we're going to go to the stars. So there's nothing left to do but to go to the stars. I love it. I hope somebody out here listening today goes out and tries to make a warp engine that works because I would love that reaction, that thought experiment you gave. I would love to see that in the news. It's going to happen. It really is. This world, this universe, both a lot stranger and a lot more forgiving than we can think. Where there, it looks like it throws up barriers, but actually... There are plenty and plenty of doors and windows and holes through those barriers. 
if you just take the time to look around. Well, Nick, this has been a fun conversation. I love talking about this. It gets me energized. So, and you're a good storyteller as well. <laughs> well. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Real quick, as we close out, where can people learn more about this? Can you say the name of your website again? And then also, if you could tell them where to find you on YouTube as well, that'd be great. Oh. Sure. Um, the website is the Wright Brothers Aeroplane Company, and it's wright-brothers.org, O-R-G. And uh, you'll find a lot, or just do a search on the Wright Brothers. It'll come up on the first page. Uh, and if you, if you would like to know what I'm doing now, we haven't, we haven't met, built many airplanes since COVID because COVID sort of killed the museum industry. You can't have people... Uh, coughing on each other while they're looking at your airplanes. So uh, we, I'm, I'm uh, back to teaching woodworking, which I absolutely love. And they can, uh, if they're interested in all and uh, learning how to glue two pieces of wood together, they can go to the Workshop Companion channel on YouTube. I went and checked it out and I loved it. Very entertaining, a lot of good stuff. And it gets you excited about woodworking as well. You know, Craftsmanship is exciting in, in, in many ways, but the way I enjoy it is it gives you power over your environment. You have too many books, you build a set of shelves. Right now, we don't have a good studio to do filling in, so we're building one. It's interesting the way that human beings, and human beings have been doing this uh, since they were human beings, changing their environment to suit themselves. We just need to change that environment right now so that we can get to the stars. Men. Just like me and Nick were talking about, go out there and start doing things. Start doing manly things that need to be done that haven't been done. Having Nick on this show is a huge privilege. I'm grateful that he came on. We are going to end this one with another mystery manly sound that goes along with this episode. Let's check it out. (laughs) 